So as we have been making our way through John chapter 1, uh, we've looked at the, the prologue of John primarily, which is what we're going to finish up today. Uh, and uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 1, because that's where we're going to be primarily. John chapter 1, we will be looking at verse 14 through verse 18. It's been an amazing, uh, I think, time as we've been studying and looking through um, John chapter 1 and, and these opening uh, paragraphs, these opening lines that John has written for us regarding Christ. And we talked, um, we've talked in, in basically uh, both sermons so far about what John's task is in writing John, what his goal is uh, in writing this book. And he tells us at the end of the book, uh, in the second to last chapter, that his task is to proclaim to his readers, uh, help them to see that Jesus Christ is God, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, the one who has come to save us from our sin. That is John's goal in writing, is to emphasize Jesus's Godness. okay? His, the fact that Jesus is God, to emphasize his deity, that is the, the main goal of John's writing of the entire book, and he especially starts off his prologue with just punch after punch after punch, emphasizing the deity of Christ, emphasizing the incarnation of God the Son. And so with that in mind, let us read John chapter 1, verse 14 through verse 18. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your blessing today over the reading and the preaching of your word. I pray that you would prove yourself faithful even when at times the preacher may be uh, extremely unfaithful or extremely fallible, Lord, as is the case here today. But Lord, I ask that you would take uh, what we have, uh, take the efforts that have been given, and Lord, use them for your glory and for the edification of the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the God-man is the, is the theme of our sermon today, as uh, is on the screen through the title. You can see that. Um, really, that is the theme of John, though, as I've already said. But the main idea of our text specifically today, which really, as I said, hones in on this incarnate word of God, the main idea is this, that Christ incarnate is the manifestation of the grace that the world desperately needs. Christ is the manifestation of the grace that the world desperately needs. Now, it's a difficult topic, I think, to to teach or to discuss the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's a difficult topic because it is, it is infinite in its magnitude and in its proportions. One theologian said that to describe the incarnation is like trying to paint a mountain scene on a grain of sand. It is, it is nearly impossible because the, the grandeur and the, the brevity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and yet that is our task today is to attempt, at least in part, to 
to see and understand and to study Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate. And that's what John has been doing, as I've said, throughout his prologue. And what really this prologue is, and we see again even in our passages today, is it is just John taking all of the theology surrounding Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate uh, word, and cramming it into these first sections. It reminds me of, of uh, those Glad Force Flex commercials uh, that I used to watch whenever I was younger, uh, where they would take like uh, bowling balls, and they would take hangers and pizza boxes, and they would just cram stuff and cram stuff and cram stuff into these Glad Force Flex bags, and they would never break. They would just be like crammed full, and then they would pack more in there and more in there, and and it, and it never broke, but it was just this massive uh, whole big bundle of stuff. And that's the way I feel John has done with this prologue. It's like he has taken, he's like, ah, I can fit a little bit more. I'll just squeeze this word in here and this phrase in here and this phrase in here until we are left with really just this, this theological composition in the prologue that is, is both mind-blowing and yet beautiful and yet frustrating to try and, and grasp all at the same time. And that is largely because of the topic with which he's writing. He's writing about the incarnate Son of God. He's writing about what he says in verse 14, which is also point number one, the Word became flesh. That's how he starts, verse 14, the Word became flesh. That right there is an absolutely amazing statement. The Word, the one that has already been described throughout this passage, the one that has pre-existed all things, the one that is with the Father, that is one with the Father, the one by whom all things were created, the true light, the true life has become flesh. Certainly Paul's readers in that day, as we've already talked about the, the Greeks and, and the Hebrews who he, would have been, uh, who he would have been writing to, would have had their minds blown understanding what he's talking about when he says the word and now that he says that the word became flesh. The magnitude of this statement is, is unfathomable. As we've said before there in this series that there are a ton of heresies that have arisen up within the church, within Christianity, and most of them, the overwhelming majority of them, have to do with the doctrine of Christ. And yet this single phrase alone refutes many of the various forms of heresies that have come up throughout the church. Just this one phrase, the word became flesh. There are some heresies that have taken on many faces that have claimed that Christ, the word, simply came and dwelt in a man, but was not actually a man. He simply uses man as a sort of temporary vessel to accomplish his task. And yet this phrase outright denies that. But we see that the word became flesh. Not merely inhabited flesh, not merely used flesh, but became flesh. There are other heresies that have claimed that Jesus appeared to be a man, but was not actually a man truly. Not the same way we are men, the same way we are humans. But again, that doesn't square with John 1.14 either. Because we see that the word became flesh. Actual flesh. Flesh and blood, humankind. And still other heresies deny the deity of Christ, saying that God chose a man and made him his son. But yet again, this passage directly refutes that. God did not 
choose a man. The word did not choose a man and, and create in that man something special or amazing, but rather the word became flesh. This should absolutely shock our senses that the alpha and the omega, the true light, the ruler of all creation became a man. And it's amazing for many reasons, but in particular, I think one thing that makes this so amazing, considering that the God of the universe entered into flesh and became a man, is so amazing when you consider just how fragile and how finite human beings are. Because we really are. I, 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 as I was planning this, you know, obviously, I didn't know what the storm was going to bring, but we see, even in the tragedy that has struck just south of us, that that human beings are fragile. We are finite. We are, in a sense, fleeting, as Ecclesiastes tells us. I, I considered uh, the life of a man named Marc Andre Leclerc. He is the subject of a of a man in a documentary Netflix or a Netflix documentary uh, that just recently aired called The Alpinist, and it's about this absolutely crazy dude who does absolutely crazy stuff in the realm of rock climbing. He does what's called free soloing. If you're familiar with what that is, that is where you go and climb these massive mountains with absolutely nothing except your hands and climbing shoes. No ropes, no other people there helping you, nothing. It is just you and these enormous rock faces. But he does even crazier things than that, where he basically does that, but he does so on like snow and ice-capped mountains where he's climbing up these frozen waterfalls that could literally give way at any moment. This dude is doing absolutely insane things. And in the interviews, they talk to him, and they're like, well, you know, when you were climbing up that waterfall that was like an inch thick, were you scared? And he was like, nope, nope, wasn't scared. He's so confident in his abilities. He's so comfortable doing what he was doing that he just wasn't even scared doing these insane things, climbing these huge ice and rock Mountains. I mean, it's absolutely crazy to do what he does. And, and in fact, I even told my wife, I said, no one lives this lifestyle that he is living right now, and it doesn't kill them eventually. Like, it will kill them eventually. If they keep doing it, it will. Because no one doesn't make mistakes, right? In the tragedy in the movie, if you, if you watch it, uh, is that he doesn't die in the movie, but they do discuss his ultimate demise. And his ultimate demise did not actually come by falling off of a rock or ice while he was free soloing. His ultimate demise did happen on a mountain, but it happened because of an avalanche. Something that was virtually completely out of his control. He had no control over what the weather or the snow was going to do, and yet ultimately that was what took his life. And, and I was so just kind of amazed by that, that, the fact that this guy was doing crazy, wildly dangerous and what most people would consider reckless and stupid things, and yet that didn't kill him. It was, a, it was a force of nature. It was an avalanche, something completely out of his control. And this speaks to, to I, think, I think, the frailty and the finite uh, qualities of human beings, that things that are out of our control, we have nothing that we can do about it, will ultimately get us. And yet this, this frailty is what God entered into, this finiteness. Dr. Joel Beek says about the incarnation that in it, God grafted the finite into the infinite. This idea of, of a, 
a tree that you can take and, and graft into another tree and, and make a sort of unique, one-of-a-kind hybrid out of these two trees is, is in, in essence, it's not perfect, but in essence, what happened in the incarnation that God and man became one in what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ was both truly God and truly man. He took on finite, frail qualities of humanity. Christ took on weakness, frailty, and he did so in order to provide a way of salvation for us. Christ's incarnation, the, the hypostatic union, is a necessary ingredient for the redemption of wicked men. And therefore, it is exactly what God did. It was exactly how far he was willing to go. He entered into the mess and the muck and the mire in order to lift us out, and all of this by his amazing grace. Which leads us to point number two. Grace, grace, grace. If I were to sum up verse 16, that's basically how I would sum it up. Verse 16 says, For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. This is a beautiful proclamation. It's beautiful because it speaks to our deepest need as humans in light of what we know to be true about ourselves, in light of the wickedness that we know is in us. The Bible speaks clearly about the human condition. In Genesis 3, we see the fall described where the human race fell into sin, which would not only affect Adam and Eve, but all who would come after them, the entire human race, as we see in Romans chapter 5. Romans 3 tells us even more graphically about the human sinful condition. In various places throughout Scripture, we are told that we are enemies of God, that we are servants of Satan, that we are spiritually dead, and that all of our good works, our obedience to the law, could never do anything to rescue us out of the situation that we find ourselves in. This is the reality for human beings. It is, in a sense, somewhat hopeless apart from Christ, is it not? It, it reminds me of the time that uh, uh, President Trump, before he was President Trump, but was uh, candidate Trump, uh, tweeted about Russell Moore, uh, who opposed President Trump and, and kind of spoke out and said, ah, you know, I don't really think he's that good of a guy. I'm not going to vote for him and this and that. And, and uh, President Trump called out Russell Moore, and on Twitter he said that he was a nasty and a heartless human being. And... Uh, a little bit later on CNN, Russell Moore was being interviewed, and the interviewer gave him an opportunity. He said, would you like to respond to what Donald Trump said about you in his tweet? And he said, well, I thought it was great. He said, I am a nasty and heartless human being. That's why I need Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sin and to give me a new heart. And then he said, we sing worse things about ourselves in church. And that's true. It's true because we recognize our sinfulness. We recognize our brokenness. We recognize our desperate need of a Savior. Remembering that our great need and utter helplessness to do anything about our own, uh, anything about it on our own, is what makes this verse, verse 16, so special. It's why it ministers to our hearts in such a powerful way. We are without hope in the world unless God extends His grace to us. That raises the question, what is grace? Many have equated grace simply to love or mercy. And certainly both love and mercy are wrapped up in what grace is, certainly. But grace is more than just a synonym for love 
or for mercy. I think grace, there, there are a plethora of def- definitions. You can look them up uh, yourself. But I think one of the most simple and best uh, definitions of grace is unmerited favor or unearned blessings. So then the fact that we receive God's love is an act of grace. Why? Because we don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve the exact opposite as his enemies, as rebels, of those who, those who have sinned against this holy God. That we experience his mercy is a grace because we don't deserve that either. All the good things that we experience in this life are rooted in God's grace and are gifts of his grace because we don't deserve any of them. Every good thing that you can think of is a product of God's grace in the world. To the point that even non-believers experience God's grace. This would be what we call common grace. To understand what a common grace is, do exactly what I just told you. Think of anything that you like or anything that is good in the world that both believers and non-believers get to experience. That is a common grace. And they should be rejoiced over. I experienced the common grace this morning and was just, I loved it. As I sat here on the front pew and had my son sitting next to me, uh, and, and he just leans into me, and, and when we pray, he puts his hand on my leg. And for those of you who are, are parents in here, you know that that is a very, very, very special common grace. It's a gift from God. Good food that we eat, friendship that we enjoy, all of the things that we find in this life to, to give us pleasure or a sense of joy or happiness, that is a common grace from God. We don't deserve any of it. But what is really being targeted and discussed here in verse 17 is something much, much, much more than that. What is in view here is a special grace, a kind of grace that saves, the kind of grace that, as Aaron preached on last week, is able to give us the right to become the children of God. The grace that is received from the fullness of Christ, Christ, as stated in verse 17, is a grace that calls dead hearts to life, the same way Christ called Lazarus out of the grave. The grace that is received in the fullness of Christ is a grace that turns the enemies of God into his servants and his ambassadors, the same way he did Paul on the road to Damascus. The grace that is received in the fullness of Christ is a grace that gives sight to the spiritually blind eyes, just like Christ did for the man born blind in John chapter 9. It's an amazing story. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, we have this whole chapter dedicated to this story of a man born blind, a man who is sitting here utterly without hope, a man who was uh, blind from the beginning to the point that Jesus' disciples even ask him, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it his own sin or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be born blind. And it's an amazing statement that Jesus makes. He said, well, no, it's got nothing to do with this man or his parents' sin. This man was born blind because I'm going to display my glory through him. God is going to use his blindness for an amazing purpose. And Jesus indeed heals this blind man. And then we see something uh, happen where the Pharisees bring this man in and, and, and we know that the Pharisees are already hostile towards Jesus. And so they call this man in and say, because Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. And they call this man in and say, who is it that has healed you? He says, it was Jesus. And they say, and who is this Jesus? Who is he? And they question him regarding Jesus. They want answers. They want to know who is this man. They want to find some fault in him. They want 
proof so that they can convict him of wrongdoing. And then in verse 25, we see this amazing statement by this man. This is, by the way, the second time they brought him in. They bring him in, question him, then they bring in his parents, they question them, and they're like, hey, he's of age, you know, we just ask him, because they were afraid of the, the Pharisees. So they bring this man back in. And in verse 25, here's what they say. We'll read 24 and 25. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. They were talking about Jesus. They said, this man is a sinner. Give glory to God for your eyesight. But this man, he, he is a sinner. And then in verse 25, we see the amazing answer that this man gives. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Well, if there was a statement on the work of Christ in our lives, that's the one, right? All I know is that once I was blind, now I see see. This relates amazingly to us. This is a perfect parallel with what takes place in our lives as humans, as Christians, that before we knew Christ, before we had encountered him, we were blind. We were dead in our sins. We were spiritually blind, unable to comprehend spiritual things, unable to do good. And Christ, in his grace, opened the eyes of our heart, corrected our spiritual blindness so that we were able to see This is an amazing thing that God has done by his grace, both to this man and in our lives, in the life of believers. This is the grace that we receive that John is writing about in verse 16. But what's even more amazing is that we notice from this verse that this grace is not dispensed once and then concluded. This is not a one-time deal, for it is certainly not a one-time need. We are in desperate need of the grace that Christ offers every single moment of every single day. Even once we've experienced this grace that radically alters our status and our standing before God, our need of his grace continues. And according to the words of John in this gospel, this grace is an endless supply. It is a fountain that never stops flowing. This is what is meant when he says grace upon grace, or some translations say grace in place of grace. That is, when grace is taken, there's more there to take its place. You could go ahead with this logic and say here that in the fullness of Christ, Christ we receive grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, and you could go on and on and on, and you would never exhaust the grace that is available in Christ Jesus. On and on and on. It is an endless supply of nourishing life giving grace and has been made available to us to meet our deepest need that is not satisfied by anything other than Christ's grace. This is a grace that is the answer to the law that was given in the Old Testament. It was the fulfillment of the law that was given. This is point number three, promises made and promises kept. Mark Dever, a pastor out of, I believe, Washington, D.C., uh, he wrote a couple books that are essentially collections of sermons over the Old Testament and over the New Testament. And he, he produced them in two volumes. Volume one, which is the Old Testament. It's called The Message of the Old Testament. And then volume two, The Message of the New Testament. And his subtitles to these books are, in the Old Testament, the sub, uh, subtitle is Promises Given, Promises Made. And then the New Testament is what? It is 
Promises Kept is the subtitle. Because Mark Dever has a correct understanding of the fullness of Scripture. That is, the gospel was being given, was being spoken of, was being built even in the Old Testament. And the gospel was completed and was given its fullness of expression in Christ Jesus in the New Testament. There are multiple ways in which the coming of Christ is the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament. The first one we see is in verse 14 of our text where John writes that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is an important word that he uses here when he says he dwelt among us. The word used used and translated dwelt is the same word that's used to describe the tabernacle later in John's gospel. There's only two times it's used. Once here and once later in reference to uh, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, recognizing uh, what the people experienced in the wilderness. This could be correctly translated, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, though that doesn't fit very well in our grammar today, but that is an accurate statement. It is intended to hearken us back to the time in Israel's history when they were in the wilderness for 40 years. In that time, God designated a location where his presence would dwell. That location was called the tabernacle. This tabernacle was the center. It was the focal point of worship for the Israelites. And then later, the temple became the focal point, the fixed point of God's presence, the fixed and focal point of worship for the Israelites, for the Jews. And what John is telling us here is that the new focal point, the center of worship for God's people, is no longer a building, is no longer a set location, but it is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the focal point of worship now. No longer this place, no longer that place, but Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. He is the center and the focal point of worship. Jesus Christ the God-man. John adds further to his teaching of Christ as the fulfillment of the promises made in the Old Testament in verse 17, where he makes another significant statement. What does he say in verse 17? He says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came when? Through Jesus. Christ. There are unfortunately a lot of people in evangelicalism and Christianity that have made a that have a wrong understanding of the law that was given in the Old Testament, the law that was given to Moses. There is a mistaken belief that the people that we read about in the Old Testament were somehow saved by their obedience to the law, that they were somehow saved by this law that was given to Moses by obedience to it, that it provided a way for them to be accepted by God, to be justified before God, that all the sacrifices that were made under the direction of the law were made in order to provide forgiveness for their sins and to make them right before God. But the book of Hebrews tells us that is absolutely false. No salvation, no justification, no saving grace ever came by obedience to the law. In fact, Hebrews 10 verses 3 through 4 says, But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No sins were ever atoned for in the sacrifices made under the Old Testament law. Not a one. Not a one. 
It was not by these sacrifices that the people were saved. It was by the grace of God that they were saved. The people were saved in the Old Testament by the same grace that we are saved. The grace by which the Old Testament saints were saved has now been made manifest in Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. He is their salvation. They did not know the name of Jesus. They did not uh, recognize what he would look like, but they knew he was coming because he had been promised ever since the fall in Genesis 3 when God declared that there would come one, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This was the coming Messiah. This was the answer to their problems. This was the means by which they were saved, not by obedience to the law. Hebrews 10 continues and says in verses 11 through 14, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single sacrifice, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There was a sacrifice that atoned for sins. There was a sacrifice that saved, but it was not the sacrifice of lambs and goats and bulls and doves. It was the sacrifice of the one true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, that atoned for all sins for all time. The law was never intended to be a means of grace. More than anything, the law was given to expose sin and to expose unrighteousness, not to cure it. The law was never a cure. God gave the law through Moses, knowing that the people would never be able to keep it. But that wasn't its point. The point of the law, at least in part, was to demonstrate what is required by God's righteous standard. To tell the people, you cannot live up to this, but there is going to be one who can. John Murray speaks of the law and says it this way. He says, law commands and demands. It propounds what the will of God is. The law of God is the holiness of God coming to expression for the regulation of thought and conduct consonant with his holiness. We must be perfect as God is perfect. The law is that which the perfection of God dictates in order to bring about conformity with his perfection. The law says what is required for God's righteousness is perfection. And each and every one of us then is left to go, well, what then? What can we do? I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. No one is perfect. So then when Christ comes, bringing grace with him, he does not come as the antithesis to the law, but he comes as the fulfillment of the law. He comes as one who says, I am able to perfect the law. I am able to fulfill the law. Though we don't see it yet in this one text, what is revealed through the rest of the gospel and the other gospels and through all of the New Testament is that Jesus in his life on earth perfectly obeyed and perfectly fulfilled the law in every aspect. He did not fall short even an inch. And in doing so, he met the requirement of righteousness that the law puts forward, that the law says here is the requirement. Jesus is the only truly righteous person who has ever lived. And by his death on the cross, as David reminded us earlier, that righteousness is credited to all of us who have faith in him. His righteousness is now counted to our account. 
so that even though we know that we have not met the requirement that the law demands, we are declared righteous by God because our union with Christ. Christ, God looks at us and sees Christ's righteousness rather than our own because he was our substitute. He was our representative. When Christ died on the cross, he did so to save all of us. He did so in all of ours place. Therefore, Christ is far superior to Moses. And this is what makes the story of the Pharisees in the New Testament so sad. I actually want us to go back to John chapter 9 because we see something that is absolutely so sad right after what we just saw, this blind man who's been given his sight and says, I don't know if this man is a sinner or not. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And then we see a truly sad statement by the Pharisees. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And here is the response of the Pharisees. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. What these men don't recognize is that in stating that, they were declaring their own condemnation. One pastor said it this way, you as a pastor are called to give people the gospel. You are called to give people Christ. But if they don't listen, then you leave them with Moses. Because if you are left with only the law as your standard, only the law as your hope of salvation, you are doomed. You cannot live up to that perfect requirement. The Pharisees, as, as holy and righteous as they were, quote unquote, as well as they obeyed the law and all the extra laws that they added to it, they were still unrighteous. Jesus exposed it left and right, their wickedness, their unrighteousness, that they were whitewashed tombs, and they are going to be left and were left, and all who are rejecting Christ and choosing some form of mor morality instead are left to be judged according to the law, according to the righteous standard that God has put forward, and you will fall every time if that is the standard by which you are judged. No one can live up to that standard except for Christ. He is the only one who has ever lived up to and fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And he did so on our behalf, which leads us to see his necessity, the necessity of the incarnation. This is point number four. In the closing lines of his prologue, John continues to drive this point home that he has set out to make, that Jesus is God. And he does this by saying that the word in flesh, the preexistent son of the father, who is one with the father, has come to make him Known. We see this in verse 18 of John. He says, No one has ever seen the Father, the only God who is at the uh, Father's right hand. He has made him known. The way to know God is to know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know God. Jesus says this of himself multiple times throughout the book of John alone. Do not believe the lie that God is able to be found and other religions, such as Islam, or Judaism, or Hinduism, or Buddhism, or any other religion you can think of. These religions do not know God or lead to God because they do not know Christ. But also do not believe the lie that God is found in nature, or in meditation, or in service of others. Because ultimately, all of that, apart from Christ, means you are left with the law. God is to be found in no place other than in Jesus Christ, the only God who is at the Father's side. 
John goes to such great lengths to cause us to see the truth of the incarnation. And the question that we ought to ask is, why? Why are you going to such lengths, John, for us to see the truth of the incarnation? Why does it matter so much? If someone says they're a Christian, but they don't believe in the incarnation of God, they don't believe that Jesus was God in flesh, why not just say, well, that's fine, you know, as long as you believe most of it or other things, why not just leave them with that? Well, the answer is because to abandon either Christ's deity or Christ's humanity is to make Christ incapable of saving anyone from their sin. Both his full and true deity and his full and true humanity are necessary in what we call the hypostatic union if he is to be the savior of sinful men. And I'll I'll try and keep this as brief as possible and say simply uh, that I would put this forward in, in two points and for two reasons. Number one, if Christ is not truly man and is only God, then he would be unable to be the second and better Adam. He would be unable to be our representatives for we are human beings and we need a human to be our representative as our federal head the way Adam was when he fell. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We needed a man to represent us because through man sin entered the world and we are all men. And then number two, that if Christ were not truly God and simply a man, then he would be finite. The wrath of God would not be fully satisfied by his death. The reason that Christ's death on the cross is able to atone for the sins of all is because Christ is infinite. And Sin against a holy, infinite God requires a holy and infinitely perfect sacrifice. And that is not available in any human being simply. Besides that, if Christ were just a man, then he would be a man like all other men born a sinner and would be able to, at best, atone for his own sins, let alone the sins of the entire world. Both Christ's humanity and Christ's deity are necessary for us to truly understand who he is and for us to truly be saved. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says the incarnation, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The grace that meets humanity's greatest need has been manifest and made available for us in Christ Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law, the God who dwells, who tabernacles with his people, and his grace comes to find its greatest and fullest fulfillment and display in the cross of Calvary. It is a true statement that to to fully grasp and to fully appreciate Jesus Christ coming into the world, the virgin birth, the incarnation, what it is that Christ did and what we celebrate on Christmas, we have to be looking at it with one eye to the cross, to the atonement, to Calvary, in order to fully appreciate everything that we celebrate on Christmas. Because that was the ultimate end. That was ultimately where all of this is heading. But as we 
lit the third candle today, the candle reminding us of the joy that is available for us in Christ Jesus, the joy that entered the world in Christmas and that Christmas brings. It brings us joy because it brings us grace and it brings us hope. And although we are sinners and though we don't deserve God's love and his mercy and his, and his compassion, he entered into the muck and the mire in order to dispense his grace out, grace upon grace upon grace, and died a death on the cross so that Christmas means something. If Christ didn't go to the cross, Christmas means nothing. But indeed, he did. And in doing so, he achieved for us fullness of life. He achieved for us adoption as sons. He achieved for us eternal life in him. And for that, we can rejoice here today. We rejoice in that, but we also mourn for those who are stuck with Moses who like the Pharisees have said, I am a disciple of Moses or even fill in the blank with anyone other than Christ. They are in a sad state. And if you are here in this place today and you have yet to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are stuck being judged by the law. You desperately need Christ's righteousness in order to cover your sin, in order for you to be able to stand before a holy God. And I would plead with you today, You don't have to obey the law perfectly. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to meet the righteous requirement of the law because Christ has already done it on your behalf. You are running on slippery ice with a rope on your back going nowhere if you are attempting to do so by your own good works. I would encourage you, stop. Rest in Christ. Accept his free and bountiful grace and mercy. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so, so much for your grace. Lord, I feel like I've been up here in in one sense rambling about something we already know, and yet in another sense, Lord, recognizing that I have, Lord, I've just barely scratched the surface to all that has been said, and and Lord, with a certain lack of eloquence, have not done anywhere near the justice that your grace in the incarnation of Christ truly deserves. And yet, Lord, I... I'm here today, Lord, just in awe of what it is that we celebrate on Christmas Day. That the Word became flesh. Lord, the fact that you entered into this mess is amazing. I wouldn't have done it. But Lord, your love and your grace and your compassion is so great that you did it because you could and because you chose to, because you love us. For that, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the joy that is ours now. And in light of that, Lord, we rejoice and we offer up to you our praise and our worship and all that we are. In Jesus' name, amen.